Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, the opinions that are offered on this show do not reflect those of Howard County Community College. And insofar as you hear legal information on this show, it is not intended to be legal advice for your individual legal situation. If you have a legal problem, it is imperative that you speak to a lawyer about the individual facts of your situation. Today, I am pleased to have not one, but two superstar guests in returning appearances. We have young Dave Herrick from Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, Dave. Good afternoon, Bob. How are you? Doing great. And of course, young Alan Steinhorn from Highland, Maryland. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much, Bob. You get uh, kudos for describing me that way. Thank you. Thank you. We kind of decided today to focus on something a little bit different. We've frequently talked about kinds of cases that people try. We've had state's attorneys, public defenders. We've had county executives. We've had judges, ex-judges. We've got all kinds of things going on. But one of the thing that sort of things that perturbs us in the age of Trump is misconceptions that take place in personal injury cases. Speaking from my personal vantage point, I will have been a lawyer 37 years on May 21st of this year. And across the span of that time, I have seen an evolution not only in how cases are approached, but also the value of cases. And throughout that period of time, cases have continuously declined in value. And I would assert that that is in part a function of misconceptions that the public and jurors have about such cases. And I couldn't think of any two better guests to get off on that topic a little bit. And I know Dave had a recent experience that we don't need to get into in great detail, but I understand that you had a case of significance in which the jury chose to disregard some very important evidence. Well, typically, Bob, as a as a as a lawyer, you have to rely in any kind of personal injury case on on experts uh, to offer opinions on whether or not a doctor violated the standard of care that the doctor is supposed to adhere to, and and whether or not that violation of the standard of care caused an injury to someone, uh, and. Generally, that requires you as a lawyer to hire someone to review the case, somebody after the fact. Um, and of course, when you do that, that that fact that you've hired them is becomes a big deal in cross-examination. You know, uh, oh, this is a hired gun and their opinion is a paid opinion. And, and of course, the defense has to do the same thing. It's almost been axiomatic since I've practiced law that if you can get a subsequent treating physician to testify that they thought that the first doctor uh, screwed, you know, up. screwed up or that as or at the very least, as a result of what the first doctor did, this bad outcome occurred that wouldn't have occurred. That testimony is generally considered to be gold plated or platinum, you know, because that's a person that you as a lawyer had no role in picking. Your client ended up seeing them. That doctor often heroically, you know, saved your client's life or did everything they humanly possibly could to fix the problem that the other doctor created. And typically when we have those folks as witnesses, they're sort of held on a pedestal by the jury because they're not somebody that I picked. They're not somebody that the defense picked. They're not hired guns. They were actually involved in the care. They're a neutral. Exactly. And so in this particular case, it wasn't a subsequent treating doctor, but there was a question in the case about what the cause of death was in this case. And, uh, Fortunately, um, you know, for us, the coroner who determined the cause of death at the time uh, made a determination that this was the cause of death. This is what the person died from. 
And of course, a coroner is not, uh, you know, an elected political position, uh, you know, a Democrat coroner or a Republican coroner. And the coroner made that decision years before there was ever a case. And of course, we could have gotten a hired gun to come in and say, look, we think the cause of death was X or Y. But the coroner is a very, you know, well-schooled doctor. It's not, you know, it's not just somebody who sometimes in a, a somebody can sign a death certificate and be a coroner and not be a doctor. But this is a forensic doctor who's, you know, done done autopsies. A Tremendous amount of experience and credibility. And so the greatest thing about this is that not only was he somebody involved at the time, but he actually formulated opinion at the time. Sometimes in a malpractice case, when a doctor says, yeah, I think the first doctor made a mistake, he doesn't actually write that in the chart while he's saving the person's life. He's just trying to save the person's life. Well, in this case, the doctor said, okay, this is my opinion. At trial, uh, the other side brought some hired guns to say, well, no, that's not the case. Um, and without getting into the, to the science and everything else and why they were wrong, um, we sat and asked the jury afterwards, what, uh, you know, what did they think about what the coroner had to say? Now, when you say you asked the jury afterwards, you're saying that after a verdict had been rendered by the jury, <laughs> you were able to take them aside and the, say, what, what made what, your verdict be the way it was? Absolutely. So in this particular case, we're suing an institution, we're two, in it, two individual doctors, and we settled with the institution and we tried the case against the doctors. They were er very adamant that they didn't do anything wrong. <clears throat> Ironically enough, the jury found that they did something wrong. And we talked to the jury afterwards, and it, it was mind-boggling. One of the first things the jury said is that, you know, we're very happy with our verdict. We taught those doctors a lesson. If they ever do this again, there'll be consequences, uh, which is mind-boggling. Time out. Time out. So they rendered a verdict against the doctors. Did the verdict have any benefit to your clients? Zero. So okay. what, what happened is there's, there's four questions you, know, you, you have to ask. Did the doctors violate the standard of care? Did the violation of that standard of care cause damage to the person in this case who died? And what was the result of that damage? You know, so if they didn't die, what, what, what could have been done differently if it was done another way? Well, in this case, the person died. Uh, and so the first question was, did the doctors violate the standard of care? The jury found yes for that question. Then when they decided what caused this person's death, the jury found that the death was not caused by what the doctors did, but was caused by some other mythical, magical thing. So, and they felt it was a good verdict because they, you know, slapped the doctor's wrist by saying you did something wrong. Of course, there were no, no consequences. The doctors are high-fiving outside the courtroom and whatever else. And, and so I got to talk to him because the coroner at the time said, this is what caused the person's death. So I get to talk to, to them and I said, well, you know, and I made a point in the trial to say, look, this, this is not some hired gun. We didn't go find this guy. We also brought the head of National Medical Services Labs in the case to testify, um, who did all the lab work to support what the coroner had to say. So it wasn't just some, you know, shoe fly opinion. And um, I said to the jury, look, you know, this person works for you. You know, I mean, he every time somebody's you know, there's a crime where somebody's dead. He testifies. Somebody the, dies in your community. The, he's the, the one the trying to be. And the prosecuting attorney relies on him. And, you know, if he was a bad coroner, he would be, you know, he'd be replaced. You know, every conviction involving a death he testifies in, in the county, blah, blah, blah. So I talked to the jury after I said, well, what did you think of the coroner's testimony? And a juror actually said to me, oh, the government official? Well, that's fake news. You can't trust anything they say. Wow. I was... Absolutely dumbfounded. I mean, this is not a political position. It's not. It's a coroner. 
right? There's no ax to grind. There's no agenda. Nobody, you know, nobody got charged with any crime. He wasn't trying, the prosecutor didn't come in and say, I need you to shade this in a way so we can charge somebody. It was just an opinion he had based on all the evidence that he had and totally rejected as fake news. It's astonishing. Wow. That's really scary. So as lawyers, we're going to have to change our approach to juries, I suppose. I, you know, I don't really know how you get around something like that. I think that's the tragedy of Maryland, that we don't have attorney-conducted voir dire. We don't have an opportunity to try to ferret out bias in juries. As judges ask questions, and, and many times they're perfunctory. You know, does anyone here have a racial or ethnic bias? Ooh, ooh, me. I don't like people from Indonesia. I mean, who's going to stand up in court and say, I'm a racist, you know, unless they really don't want to be on the jury and so, don't so care So just to translate this into English, Alan, can you explain a little bit about the voir dire process in Maryland? Well, Maryland is a state that doesn't permit great voir dire. Voir dire is the process by which jurors express in open court before the trial, before the case starts, whether they have any biases or prejudices that might affect their opinions. So before the trial starts, the judge will call maybe 30 jurors, 40 jurors into the courtroom, and they will ask a series of questions. In Maryland, the lawyers are not permitted to ask questions. Additionally, Maryland voir dire is very limited at finding out what a juror's biases, prejudices, and thoughts are. All that the judges ask are, do you know anyone in the case? Are you prejudiced? Do you think you can be fair? But we are not allowed to ask specific questions like, well, what news shows do you watch? What newspapers do you read? Do you believe in fake news? Do you believe in science? Do you believe that college education is a good thing? You know, a large percentage of one political party now believes that college education is not a good thing. So if I'm trying a case and it's reliant on scientific principles and I've got a jury that believes that education and science is really bad for you, well, maybe I want people that think science is good. So I'd like to know through the voir dire process whether people think science is real. But in Maryland, we're not permitted to inquire about topics. That like is that. mind-boggling. Listen to what you just said. <laughs> I have to make sure a jury believes in science. I mean, that is mind-boggling. My mind is boggled as I listen to your story. When you told us this story before we began the program, I was shocked, quite frankly. I was shocked that that happened. I tell you, it's really interesting. The original U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the right to a fair trial, the original draft of that, included attorney-conducted voir dire. And the reason included in attorney-conducted voir dire Again, voir dire meaning questions asked questions of, the jurors, of the jurors so the lawyers can hear their philosophies on life. And the reason that it did is because when England was running us as a colony, in order to sit on a jury, you had to prove your loyalty to the king. So the judge would ask jurors, are you going to do what the king wants in this case? And the juror says, no, they wouldn't sit them. So they'd stack the jury against it. So when the colonists and the, and, and the Revolutionary War times decided they wanted to revolt and create a new country, it was a huge issue for them. Like, we're not going to let the judge pick who the jury is. The jury has to have questions from the lawyers to find out whether there's bias. And the original draft of the, of the amendment 
fair trial included attorney conductive voir dire. Interestingly enough, it was removed because the framers and the founding fathers were concerned that if they spelled out specifically what a fair trial was, that it would be limited to the things that they spelled out. So they wanted it to be more encompassing by using the term fair trial than putting out specific things. As a result, although Maryland's rules allow for attorney-conducted voir dire, it's at the judge's discretion. And typically judges do not want to give lawyers discretion to do it. And it's really a tragedy because I think a lot of Maryland lawyers aren't trained to do it. So there's some fear that it gets out of hand if, if somebody just go, goes and does it. And it's a much more expeditious process if a judge does it. But we're here for justice, not for experience, expediency. We want a fair jury. You know, we go through years litigating a case for those two or three or two weeks or two or three days or one day in court. That means everything for our client. Interestingly enough, if it's a capital case in Maryland, if your client is on tr on trial for, for for murder, you have a constitutional right under the Maryland Declaration of Rights and Maryland law to give attorney conducted voir dire. That's the only circumstance in which attorneys get to find out whether they're by right a bias from jurors. Well, what's the difference? If I represent somebody in a civil personal injury case where my client is dead, why don't I get the same rights as somebody who's being tried criminally for a death? It's crazy. And and I've always disagreed with it. And there are a few judges who are open to the concept. Unfortunately, I just haven't had a case in front of them because I'll be filing a motion to try to get it. Because unless you really ferret out, how could anybody want any juror that's biased? I don't want a juror that's biased for me. And I sure as heck don't want a juror that's biased for them. Anecdotally, all the things that obviously uh, infuriate you on this used to infuriate me when I was a younger man. And I was once trying a case over in Montgomery County before Judge Warren Donahue, who was a great guy. And I asked him, because of some peculiar circumstances of the case, to allow me to do voir dire. And I submitted the usual, like essentially the way this thing works is we are required in Maryland to submit written questions to the judge. And given the judge's law clerk, judge looks at them and tries to take the ones from all the parties and kind of fuse them together into a one, you know, a continuum of information that they're trying to gather. But in any event, I gave this to Judge Donahue and he absolutely would not permit it. And after the trial, one of the alternate jurors came up to me and explained to me how she was going to would have found against my client in a case where my client was a passenger in a vehicle that ran into a parked car. And gradually what trickled out of this individual is that she had worked for a corporation that made seatbelts. So she knew from her work at the corporation making seatbelts, my client couldn't have smashed her head into the windshield and required tons of plastic surgery if she'd had her seatbelt on and that she would have in effect punished my client. Even though somebody drove a, a car into a parked car, clearly was at fault, she would have punished my client for that. And so- And, and let's just add that Maryland law prohibits a juror from considering whether one wore a seatbelt, and that is a jury instruction. Correct. So as I talked to this person for a while, we gradually sort of got commonality, and she had to admit that if she had answered the written questions I asked accurately, that she really did have some biases that affected the case. It came out that she had been sued for a personal injury case before where she thought it was a minor accident and so forth. 
So ultimately, I got an acceptable verdict. It wasn't great, but it, you know, it, it, and I went to the judge and I talked to him about it afterwards. And what he said simply was, this is all about efficiency. We, the Court of Appeals mandates we turn around these cases during a certain period of time. And you know, once we have lawyers asking questions and trying to ask follow-up questions, the cases are going to take, you know, dear instead of taking 10 or 15 minutes, could take an hour or two. And I did kind of say, and he was a good guy, didn't wasn't especially crazy about my bringing this issue up. I said, well, you know, there is an issue of actually having due process of law, allowing potential jurors to actually think, gosh, I was sued previously. That could create a bias in me against a similar such case as this and that sort of thing. Well, and one of the biggest outrages is is we once a juror elicits some type of bias, it then falls on the judge to determine whether that that bias is, is going to disqualify the juror from sitting. And a question that judges frequently use are, uh, you know, the fact that you are X and such and Y and such, you know, that wouldn't in any way bias you from sitting on this jury fairly, would it? Yeah. Well, yeah, and who's going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely would bias me. You know, I'm not going to sit on this jury. And, and there's study after study on, on people's ability to self-assess their own bias is completely and utterly flawed. I mean, there literally are tomes of studies on this. And you're asking somebody if they're biased. Nobody wants to say, yeah, I'm biased. I'm a bad person. Put me on this jury so I can hose these people. It just doesn't happen. It's well, nonsense. The, the way that it works in Maryland is that you could have a juror ask the question, do you believe people should be allowed to file lawsuits when they have personal injuries? And you might have someone stand up and say, you know, I kind of lean against that. I'm not sure that people should be allowed to sue for personal injuries. And the judge will follow it up with, well, the law is that they are allowed to. Understanding that's the law, do you think you could be fair? What person in front of a room of 40 people is going to say, you know what, I'm not a fair person. No, I can't be fair. And I've seen instances where I think it's clearly biased. And the judge says, well, despite the fact that you hate people that file injury claims, do you think you could be fair in this injury claim case? Uh, yeah, I think so. And that's, they sit them down. That's my favorite. My favorite judge question is, does anyone feel they can't follow the law as I, judge and officer, will instruct you at the end of this, this proceeding? No, Your Honor. I actually brought my own laws. They're, they're, they're called the laws <laughs> right. according nope. to Dave, and I'll be using those in nope. this case. And the guy with the gun in the hell, in front of the courtroom, the hell with him, the hell with you. I'm an anarchist. I'm going to do what I want to do. Who's going to say? I've never. Have you ever seen anyone stand up and go, no, I can't follow the law? Well, not only it's that. Not, I mean, no. so they, talk about efficiency. What a waste of time to even ask that they question. They will also lie to get on a jury. And early in my career, I was second chair in a wrongful death case. That was a defense verdict for the doctors. It was a week-long trial. It was a big case. And about six months after the case, I am at an eatery at one of the local malls. I don't even know if they have eateries at malls anymore. Do they still have malls? Sure they do. We can go We there. have malls? All right. I'm at an eatery at food a mall. Court. At the food court. That's right. And someone behind me or in front of me, a woman is looking at me and keeps staring over her shoulder at me. So... After she does this three or four times, I say, excuse me, do I know you? And she goes, uh, uh, are you a lawyer? And I said, yes, I am. And she goes, oh, my God, oh, my God. And she gets all upset. And I said, do you know me? Do I, I don't recognize you. And she said, I was on the jury about six months ago on a case involving the death of a child. And um, you were the attorney. And I looked at her and I said, oh, my gosh, you were on that jury. And she goes, yeah, and I wanted to rule in your favor. And I said, well, that's interesting. What happened? And she said, well, you know, I had a child that died as a result of malpractice. And at that moment, my heart dropped. 
Because if she's sitting on that jury, I should have known that. And they were asked, has anyone been a party to any legal cases? And this person did not say she had been. And she said that she was a holdout and tried to get the other jurors to agree that it should be a plaintiff's verdict. But eventually she just gave up. Now, I wasn't that upset that she gave up her argument, but I was upset that she had deceived the court. Even though she would have been a favorable juror for me, and she was a favorable juror for me, just bothered me that she lied to the court. You can't ask yes or no questions of people in a catacall room where there's 60 people in the room and expect people to just voluntarily stand up and say yes or no. It's true that they usually follow up at the bench. You know, once somebody says yes, they come up in a private conversation. But the only way to really get to the truth is to establish some type of rapport with the jury as they do in over 35 other states and and begin to talk honestly and openly about the way people are. And, you know, if you say to a person, you know, hey, maybe this isn't the best case for you to sit on. There's other cases here. Maybe maybe you wouldn't you know, you wouldn't give this eat both sides an equal shot. People are more willing if you give them the opportunity. People are more willing to express it. And you and you couch it in such a way that they're not a bad person. You know, you know, given that there's two cases and you have a little bit of experience, you have some opinions about a case like this, maybe you'd be better off in a in a breach of contract case or in a criminal case. Uh, and people are willing to say that. But when it's efficiency and expediency are the two bases from which a, a judge is operating from they're they want the person to say, I'm not biased. So they can sit on the jury and move on. They want to impanel the first six or 12 people that walk in the door if they can. And that's the problem. And if you think about it, how many of the audience were alive in 1996 when the O.J. Simpson trial occurred? That jury selection took about a month. And in Montgomery County, Prince George's County, Howard County, Anne Arundel County, his trial would have been less than that. And if we sound like we're passionate, like as I listen to you, Dave, and you're passionate about this subject, understand, folks, that if you're going to have a jury trial, you want people to be fair to you. And what's what you're hearing today is lawyers that have been trying personal injury cases for 30, 35 years telling you, we can't be sure when we try a case before a jury that we have a fair and impartial panel of jurors. I have reached the cynical stage where I sort of subscribe to bring me the first six people because it's not like going through 40 of them is going to get me a fair group. And I just feel like my powers of persuasion are such, which is you know, maybe egotism or something, <clears throat> that that'll be enough. And I recognize that isn't correct, but it does make you very cynical. When well, you we can't use process. jury consultants in Maryland yeah. because there's not enough information <clears throat> for them to analyze. Yeah. Well, which goes to another interesting thing. Obviously, what you know about a jury is what's on the juror form. And what's Explain on the, that, what's Dave, on the so juror, that the so audience all understands. The, all the jurors fill out a form when they go to jury duty, and it, they put their name. They put uh, their occupation their spouse's occupation, their age. Where you live. Okay. Addresses and, and where they live, okay? So all we know about them is their name, their address, the occupation when they filled out the form of them, the occupation of their spouse. And of course, when they get in the courtroom and are introduced, we know what their race is and we know their age. The Supreme Court says we are not allowed to strike jurors based on their age. Batson, baby. So that's one of the things that's out. We're not allowed to, to strike jurors on behalf of their race. So what are we striking jurors on? Their address? Really? What do lawyers strike jurors on? Honestly, they strike jurors on race and age all the time. 
even though it's unconstitutional to do so, because what other information do they have? It's always been my argument that the way we do it in Maryland forces lawyers to act unconstitutionally because, you know, they only know five things about a juror. Two of them they're not allowed to use. Well, how can you strike on address? If the juror doesn't talk or you don't hear what the juror has to say, how would you have any idea whether or not a juror is going to be biased or not biased? And it's integrity in the whole system, but it's, you know, if a case takes an extra day, so what? You have parties waiting two years with their lives invested, a loved one that has died, or they're in a wheelchair permanently, whatever it is. That's not important enough to take an extra day to get a juror who's fair. And you can't go on vibes. I've had so many times where my client and I have picked a juror and not picked a juror based on our vibes. We then watch them during the trial. And I thought jurors were with me that after the trial, I find out they weren't. And jurors I thought were opposite me, they were my strongest proponents. So I feel a little bit helpless under the Maryland system of picking jurors. Well, you kind of find yourself as a lawyer in a trial smiling a lot and being firm and strong and hoping that that somehow will cosmically carry the jurors along. I served on a grand jury once and, you know, there's stereotypes as a lawyer that you were obliged to have because Maryland doesn't allow you to have any information about jurors. And one of them would be kind of like, well, the guy with kind of the young guy with long hair and facial hair would be maybe more inclined to rule for my personal injury client or more inclined to uh, acquit somebody in a criminal case. And so I was on a grand jury. And because I'm a lawyer and because I understand the law, sometimes I was in disagreement about the charges the prosecutors wanted to bring. And this guy was the most adamantly opposed to everything. He used to get mad at me during the grand jury proceedings, and other people would defend me. And yet he is somebody, if I'd seen him in a jury pool in any of the cases I tried, somewhere out here in Howard County, I would have thought, that's a guy who I think I can persuade. That's a guy who will be disposed to go along with my client when, in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. And here, the saddest thing about our system not actually adequately ferreting out biases, you know, in a civil case, our, the folks listening to this may not know it, but you have a jury of six, and it has to be unanimous. So if you get one person on there who's biased, and it, it doesn't matter what the other folks are going to do. I tried a case in Baltimore County years ago, and the, the defense settled the case. About a week into the trial, they finally threw in the towel and they knew they were, you know, they were in trouble and they were getting beaten. And, and one of the persons on my juror uh, worked for the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, where if you, you are a victim of a crime and let's say a family member dies, you know, the, the, there's a fund available to help bury them, right, or to compensate. It's very limited. And of course, I jumped to the conclusion, if I had to jump to a conclusion, well, they're probably somebody who's somewhat empathetic if they work for the Criminal Injuries Compensation Fund. And so I try this case and we settle it for a really good number. And we're talking to the jury, you know, and there are two alternates and six jurors. And she's like juror number four. And I, you know, say to the jury, you know, what, you know, what did you think? And, you know, all the jurors like, oh, we would have given you all this money, blah, blah, blah. We thought the doctor would tell you a fault. And she said, this is a frivolous lawsuit. And I said, this is a frivolous, what do you mean? It's a frivolous lawsuit. You know, I mean, knowing that obviously they didn't think it was a frivolous lawsuit. They paid me a lot of money without a jury verdict in the case. And uh, and, and I, I said, all right, well, let me take you to lunch because I'll be damned if somebody sit on my juror and think I brought a frivolous lawsuit. I didn't care how much time it took. I was going to sit and talk to her about it. Well, first thing she said is, you know, I'm a claims adjuster 
for the for the Criminals Injuries Compensation Board. Well, one of the questions in voir dire was, does anyone work in insurance or claims adjuster? She didn't raise her hand to that question. So right away, she should have been disqualified if I had any opportunity to follow up. And uh, she said, yeah, I, I, I work for the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board. They call me the bitch, she said very proudly. I said, oh my. really? She said, well, yeah, they say I have a big big no, red no stamped on my forehead. I said, what do you mean no? She goes, you know, if we pr we can prove that any of these people that sit on this uh, or that, that make a criminal injuries compensation, if they're any in any way linked to a crime and they're a crime victim, then we don't have to pay. And you know, they're all criminals anyway. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. So we start talking about the case and she goes, you know, I don't believe in experts. I'm just as smart as anyone else. I'd have to read all the medical records before I even be willing to discuss this case. There's 6,000 pages of medical records. So you could see if they started deliberating this case, you know, be four days in and she's on page 3,000. And when she's telling me it's a frivolous lawsuit, two of the jurors behind her are like doing the crazy sign with their fingers and everything else. And I spent three or four hours in lunch. We went over the records and she's like, you know what? I have to admit this is a legitimate case. But, you know, honestly, I'm not sure I would have got there without most of them aren't right without without, without, <laughs> is, you know, without sitting is, there. And that's just mind boggling. Is I, that an example of our fake news cycle or is yeah. that someone who's just entrenched in, and biased that we need to find out in voir dire? Well, I mean, I think it's they're they're not mutually exclusive. I think in, in a in a world in which. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. And when we live in a world where people are categorically invalidating opinions because they're from a government official or because it's some scientist and what do they know? Um, it becomes even more important to allow attorneys into the process to explore whether something is fair. I don't want a biased juror. I think I agree with Alan when Alan said he felt like this juror, even though the juror was help, trying to help him, was biased and shouldn't have been sitting. I don't want a jury that's pro me or pro my client. I just want a fair jury. I want an open-minded juror and, that will listen to the arguments and the facts. That's right. You know, because I'm not bringing a case unless I'm right. Let's be honest. I mean, it costs $100,000 or more to bring a medical malpractice case. Of my money. I lose, I'm out that money. The old notion that people bring frivolous malpractice cases is nonsense. There's no way. Nobody has that much money to invest in something if they're not right. And so all I want is a fair jury. I'm going to win. And very quickly, just for the listeners out there, we have to pay expert witnesses to testify in medical malpractice cases. We will incur ten, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars in expenses. I had one case that was one hundred seventy thousand in expenses. In those cases, to go forward, you run the risk of losing all that money. Why would any lawyer pursue a frivolous case in that circumstance? On that note, it's time to wrap up everyday law. As always, it takes fascinating turns. I've got to have you back as appearing again soon. Thank you very much. It's Bob Clark from Everyday Law. Fair. Well.